Well, good morning, church family. It is a great honor to be standing before you today and have the privilege of bringing God's Word uh, to us this morning. And it is my prayer this morning that, uh, that we would not sit in judgment of God's Word, but that we would allow God's Word to sit in judgment of us and to bring us to repentance where it needs to be applied this morning. I'm, uh, I, I just uh, feel such an incredible sense of unworthiness to stand before you this morning. If it were not for the grace of God, if it were not for the power of his word and the ability of his, his spirit to transform a life, I could not stand before you this morning. But because of those things, I can. I want to invite you to take your Bible, turn to the book of Acts, to chapter 6, and beginning in verse 8. And we are going to eventually get to this passage, but there are some things that I want to share with you this morning that kind of will bring everything into context here uh, as we talk about the stoning of Stephen. You know, this morning, as we were singing, I was struck by the fact that sometimes we sing songs and we see the words up on the screen, and uh, we sing those songs and we sing them ever so lightly without even thinking about what it is we're singing at the time. I mean, think about these words, for this cause I live, for this cause I'd die. I surrender all for the cause of Christ. I wonder if we could truly sing those words with all truth and sincerity in our hearts this morning. Have we really thought about what that means, what that truly conveys? Do we live for the cause of Christ? Are we willing to die for the cause of Christ. Are we truly surrendered to the cause? You know, these past several weeks, we have been walking through the book of Acts together as a church family. And, and by now, one thing that should be evident, one thing that should be clear to us, is that the early church was a dynamic organism. And though it faced strong opposition, it literally turned the world upside down. Did you know from the time of Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven until um, 325 A.D., there was about 300 years there where the early church was uh, formulated and initiated and, and affirmed and developed and what have you. And during that 300-year period, there were 10 great persecutions or campaigns by the Roman Empire to squelch, to subdue this thing called Christianity. And yet it thrived under the pressure. It thrived under the persecution, so much to the point that in 325 A.D., 300 years later, Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. Now, I'm not saying that was a good thing, 
But what I am saying, what a contrast from just a very small beginning to eventually within just 300 short years, Christianity became the all-consuming religion of the world, the known world at that time. But at great sacrifice, at great cost. And uh, so what was so unique about this early church that enabled it to thrive in the midst of intense persecution and hardship? What was it that empowered the early church to have such a tremendous impact upon the world at large? Have you ever really thought about that question? Have you ever really asked yourself that question? What made the early church so dynamic? Well, let's go back and take a look at the beginning, the origin even, of the word church. Turn to Matthew 16, 18. And there you will find some words by our Lord Jesus Christ that I think are significant for us to understand here this morning. You see, what has happened is Jesus is talking to his disciples and he asks them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some say you're this, and some say you're that. And they came up with a a few different answers. And then Jesus asked the question, he says, but who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter stands up, and he makes one of the most incredible statements. You know, Peter had a tendency to kind of put his foot in his mouth a lot of times. But I tell you what, at this particular moment, he was spot on. He was right on target when he said, you are the Christ the anointed one, the son of the living God. He got it right, man. He got it. He hit the nail on the head. And Jesus, in response to that affirmation of faith, Jesus says this. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is the first time in Scripture that the word church was ever mentioned. And I'm sure the disciples were kind of scratching their head, church, what is that? I'm sure Satan was scratching his head and saying, church, what is that? What's Jesus talking about? Now I want you to notice a few things about this statement. First of all, he says, I say to you that you are Peter, Petros, it means little stone. But then he says, upon this rock, Petra, which is a bedrock, which is a chief cornerstone, he says, I will build my church. Now, some have taken that to believe that Jesus was saying that upon Peter, he was going to build his church and that Peter was the first pope. That's not what he was saying at all. What he was saying is that the affirmation of faith that Peter gave, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that is the bedrock upon which the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be built. And he says, I will build my church. Now, Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, you will build my church. You see, only Christ can transform a life. Only Christ has the power to change our hearts. Only Christ has the the wherewithal to bring a transformation into your heart and mind. 
We are his ambassadors, yes. We are his instruments to go out and his messengers and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But only Jesus can save a person. Only Jesus can change their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and and bring them to repentance, bring us to repentance. Jesus is not trying to Jesus doesn't expect us to build his church. That's his responsibility. But he does expect us as his ambassadors, as his witnesses to go forth and to speak the message of the gospel. Nor did he say, I will build your church. You see, the church is to exist, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not there to, it's not here to cater to our own personal preferences it's not Jesus building our church for us in the fashion that we want it to be Jesus was Jesus is building his church for himself and for his glory and he did not say you will build your church in other words the church is not about us The church is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone, and we are to exalt him. We are to lift him up. And so there were two things that he was saying in this passage. One is that he was going to build his church for his glory. Not for ours, for his glory. And secondly, he goes on to say, and he says, and the gates of Hades, that's the word for death, the gates of Hades, death, shall not prevail against it. Now, this word Hades or death carries with it more specifically the idea of martyrdom. Martyrdom. And what he was saying is that even the gates of death or martyrdom would not have the power to stop his church. Now let's fast forward to the book of Acts. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples there in Acts 1.8. It's right before his ascension into heaven. And Jesus makes this statement in Acts 1.8. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Now let's break that down here for a moment. First of all, he says, you shall receive power. That word power is the word dunamis in the Greek and it's where we get our word dynamite from. In essence, what Jesus is saying, you shall receive spiritual dynamite power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you he says there's something is going to happen he says you shall be witnesses unto me that word witnesses again this is interesting that word witnesses in the Greek means martyr it's where we get our English word martyr or someone who overcomes the fear of death and courageously speaks the truth about Jesus regardless of the cost. Listen, that's what the early disciples did. All 12 of the early disciples, save John, the apostle, were martyred for their faith. 
John was exiled to the island of Patmos where he received the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were all martyred. And many in the early church were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. For this cause I live. For this cause I die. I surrender all for the cause of Christ. That's what made the early church so dynamic. And Jesus said in that in Acts 1:8, he says, You will be my what he says, in Jerusalem, here at home. He said, in Judea and Samaria, across the nation of Israel or across the land of the United States. And he said, into the end of the earth or around the world. So, what happened in the book of Acts? Well, we come to Acts chapter 2, and the first thing we see is the day of Pentecost. And uh, by the way, Pentecost was 50 days after the uh, Passover, and it was one of three great celebrations in Israel where all Jewish believers would come together from various parts of the region, come together to Jerusalem, and they would celebrate this feast of harvest and bring their first fruits before the Lord. And, and it was on this day that all of the believers were gathered in one place, and the Spirit of God came down upon the Holy Spirit, came down and filled them or empowered them uh, with himself, and they began to speak boldly as witnesses of Christ while manifesting the gift of speaking in languages previously unknown to them. This, these languages that they began to speak, speak in tongues, was not an ecstatic utterance. It was known languages, but it wasn't known to the disciples. You see, these people come from all these different places with all these different languages, and they were enabled to hear the gospel message in their own language. Therefore, the gift of speaking in tongues primarily was for the purpose of evangelism. It both initiated and validated the early church and it advanced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he came. And it's interesting for me to note that in chapters 3 through chapter 7, though five times it is mentioned that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the filling was not manifested by the gift of tongues. It was manifested by boldly preaching the gospel message. And really throughout the book of Acts, when people were filled with the Spirit, that's what you saw. The evidence that they were filled with the Spirit is that they boldly spoke out the gospel message. The next time we see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. Philip, one of the early deacons, became an evangelist and he began going about and preaching the gospel message in Samaria, the city of Samaria. And God granted him favor, and many, a multitude of people were uh, being converted to faith in Jesus Christ. But one thing that had not happened at that time is the Holy Spirit had not fallen 
upon them. And so the apostles, hearing about this great revival that was taking place in Samaria, sent Peter and John to go and to investigate. And Peter and John coming and seeing the work of God and how these people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but the Spirit had not fallen on them. They prayed for them, and the Spirit of God came down upon them, and they began to speak in these known languages as well. And uh, it's interesting that the third and final time that we see the manifestation of the Spirit as far as speaking in tongues, we find in Acts chapter 10. And here is a situation where you have a Gentile. He is a centurion. His name is Cornelius, but he's a God-fearing man. And he's seeking God the best way he knows how. And God brings to him a vision. And he says, go find Peter in Joppa, and he will come and he will explain the message of salvation to you. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, he, he summoned Peter. God had to go and prepare Peter's heart for this, you know, to go speak to a Gentile about the gospel. But, but God spoke to Peter. Peter responded. Peter took the gospel to Cornelius and to his family, and they received the gospel message and were saved. And it says the Spirit of God fell upon them, and again we see this speaking in tongues. So think about it for a moment. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. In Judea and Samaria, when Philip was preaching there in Samaria, and Peter and John came and prayed, and the Spirit of God came down upon them. And to the uttermost parts of the earth, when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles for the very first time. Do you see the pattern that is taking place here in the book of Acts? How the Great Commission is going forth uh, in, in, this, in this great book. Now, I want to acknowledge something here. There is confusion about this gift of speaking in tongues, and I'm going to share with you my position. You don't have to agree with me. It's okay if you differ with me about this. But my position personally is I believe that the gift of speaking in tongues is no longer valid, that it has ceased. As mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he talks about how where there are tongues, they shall cease. I believe that is, that is true. Quite honestly, if you were asking me, as one who travels on mission regularly to various countries throughout the world, if I felt the gift of speaking in tongues was available to me, I would gladly receive it. I would much prefer to be able to go into another nation and speak that language without having to learn the language. But it hasn't happened. And I tell you what, those who serve with Wycliffe Bible translators and other translators, I believe they'd love to have that gift of speaking in those known languages, don't you think? But obviously there are differences of opinion about that. Now, let me go on. On the day of Pentecost, Peter boldly speaks. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told that 3,000 souls were added to the church on that day. And we find <clears throat> that uh, this was pretty incredible. You think about it. 3,000. Can you imagine preaching the word of God today and seeing 3,000 people come 
and become a part of the body of Christ here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. That would be incredible. It certainly was incredible then. They didn't even have a facility like this. They met in houses, and yet 3,000 were added that day. Pretty incredible. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we're told that, he, that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. Then we come to Acts chapter 3 and 4, and we see the story of Peter and John going up to the temple to pray, and they encounter a man who is 40 years old who has been lame from birth. And uh, he's seeking charity, he's asking for alms. And what happens is uh, they say, look, we don't have any money, man, but what we do have, we'll give to you. And what they did is in the name of Jesus Christ, it says, rise up and walk. And the man immediately jumps up and he begins to, to, to walk and to leap and to praise God. The man had never walked a day in his life. He didn't even have to learn how to get his balance. He immediately was healed and came, began leaping and walking and praising God. Can you imagine the stir among the people that day that that created? This crowd gathers around Peter. They're just amazed at what's going on. And they gather around Peter, and, and, and they're wondering what's going on. And Peter sees the opportunity, and he begins to preach to them the gospel message. Now, the Jewish authorities didn't like what he was saying, and they, they sent uh, for him to be arrested. But many others who had heard the message believed, and now we're told that the number of men had grown to 5,000. That didn't even include the women, that didn't include young people and the number of believers at that day, but they'd been added to their number. When the religious leaders asked Peter, by what power or by what name have you done this? In chapter 4, verse 7, it says, he being filled with the Holy Spirit. There we see it again. Filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 8, boldly preached, to the rulers and to the elders of Israel, speaking of Jesus explicitly, this is what he says in verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Think about that for a minute. Listen, if anyone ever comes to you and tells you the Bible never teaches that Jesus is the only way to God, they have never read the Bible. Jesus said it in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter says it here in Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he talks about Jesus. There's one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. We are told in verse 13 then that when these leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They, they marveled. They marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, obviously, these rulers, 
They didn't like the message that Peter was bringing, but what could they do about it? Here was a man who had been born lame, standing right there in their midst. He had obviously been healed. There was a notable uh, miracle that had taken place right there in, before their eyes. And, and so there wasn't anything they could really do, so they simply commanded them not to speak of this Jesus any longer. And they threatened them. And before they were released, however, Peter and John courageously exclaimed that they were obligated to a higher power and that they would not bow to their pressure or to their threats. So they went back to their companions. They prayed together, not for their safety. No, they prayed that God would embolden them to continue as witnesses for Christ regardless of the cost. Look at Acts 4.29. It says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And I want you to see then, just a couple verses later, the results of their prayer. Here they're praying, God give us boldness. What were the results? In verse 31 it says, And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And, with, and then verse 33, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And then we come to chapter 5, and, and after the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, the apostles again were arrested and imprisoned, but an angel released them and told them to go back to the temple and to continue their witness. They did, and then they were arrested again, and this time they were beaten, and this time they were threatened once more, and yet they rejoiced in their suffering for the sake of the gospel, for they for this cause I live, for this cause I die, I surrender all for the cause of Christ. And then we come to chapter 6 and 7 and we see the life and witness of Stephen in chapter 6 and 7. In chapter 6 we are introduced to the man Stephen with whom we are told he was full of faith and he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was selected along with six other men who uh, was to serve in the daily distribution of food. Soon afterward it was reported in chapter 6 verse 7 the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Now up until this point it talks about 3,000 were added on the day of Pentecost that people were being added daily to uh, the, the body of believers. There were 5,000 now, and, and, and now it uses the term that they were multiplied. They're becoming multiplied. What's the difference? Well, at this point, no longer is it just the apostles who are preaching the Word of God. There's no longer just Peter, st Peter standing up and preaching the Word of God. Now, uh, many believers in the body of Christ were becoming emboldened, and many of them were stepping out in the power of the Holy Spirit, and many were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people were coming to Christ, uh, and, and the church was growing exponentially now. And then we're told in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says, And a great many of the priests 
were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, let me, let me just stop here for a moment before I go on talking about Stephen. There are four quick life lessons that I want to share with you this morning. The first life lesson is this. The secret to dynamic church growth is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the engagement of the body of Christ in our responsibility to advance the gospel. Let me say that again. The secret to dynamic church growth is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the engagement of the body of Christ in our responsibility to advance the gospel. Notice it says in chapter 4, verse 31 and 33, And when they prayed the place, again, we, we saw this before, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke the word of God with boldness, and there was a great grace upon them all. See, here's the truth. And I'm not sure all of us understand this truth. And it's important for us to understand it. All believers are indwelt by the Spirit of God at the point of salvation. When a person becomes a Christian, God puts upon us His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And He comes as God's deposit as God's guarantee of resurrection that is to come and that we belong to him. We are, he is God's seal of approval upon the believer. Now, not, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, where he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? But listen, even though all believers are indwelt by the Spirit, not all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians, uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Just as a man, is, when he's drunk, is completely under control of alcohol, we are to be completely under the control of the Spirit of God. What's the difference? Well, in his indwelling, the Spirit of God takes up residence in our life. But in his infilling, he becomes the president of our life. Now we are yielding our lives to him. Now we are surrendering to him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Life lesson number two. You and I can experience the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as we confess our sins and yield our lives to God daily. We do this by cleansing ourselves, by coming to God and not allowing sin to become a barrier to us. And we confess our sins unto the Lord. And then we ask God's Spirit to completely take control. We yield our lives to Him.
Listen, being filled with the Spirit does not imply that somehow we receive more of God in our lives, like a glass that is half filled and you're filling it up with more water. No, it's not. We receive all of the Spirit of God at the time of salvation we will ever have. Being filled with the Spirit is more about us yielding more of our lives to Him daily, and He gets more of us under His control. Life lesson number three. Boldness to speak on behalf of Christ comes as we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw this here in the book of Acts. If we are not walking in the power of God's Spirit, we are not going to overcome the fear of retribution. We will not courageously witness on behalf of Christ. The only way we can be a courageous witness of Christ is to be filled with his Holy Spirit. That shows us the absolute necessity of being filled with his Spirit. Recently, my family and and I were at the beach. And uh, uh, the very first day we got there, uh, we went down to the ocean. And Paul and I got into the water about waist deep. And we had a couple of the young children with us, uh, my grandchildren, his children, with us and Jack our six-year-old basically was out digging in the sand and playing in the sand but at some point he looked up he saw us having fun out in the water and he wanted to come join us and have fun with us and so he comes to the edge of the ocean and of course the waves are coming and it's noisy and and everything and and he was very timid about it and he was asking for us to come get him to bring him out into the water and his dad said Uh, No, son, just come out to us. It's okay. You're okay. Come out to us and join us out here in the water. And as Jack obeyed his dad and began walking to the water, we could hear him under his breath speaking to himself. And this is what he was saying. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Folks, we need to learn how dependent we are upon the power of God's Spirit in our life so that we can face courageously the, 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 the tension of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost world. And we may need to, to as, as we're seeking God's power through His Holy Spirit, as we move forward as a witness, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Face our fears with courage. Listen, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the conviction to face our fears and the power of the Holy Spirit. Life lesson number four, when we step out in faith as witnesses for Christ, we should expect opposition. Listen, opposition in verse nine, chapter six, verse nine, opposition came to Stephen. It says, Stephen, full of faith and power, Uh, And great wonders, verse 8, and signs among the people, verse 9, then there arose from uh, some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They came and they began to dispute with him. They began to argue with him. But we're told in verse 12, uh, verse 11, that, excuse me, Verse 10, that they were not able to resist the wisdom of the Spirit by which he spoke. So you know what they did? They did exactly what evil people always do. If they can't beat you in your argument, then they attack your character. 
And, and, and they will lie. And they will bring up false charges. And they will try to stir up the people against you. That happens all the time. And that's what they did with Stephen. They lied. They said that he blasphemed the Holy Spirit in the temple and that he blasphemed God. And, uh, and so he was brought before the council and they wanted to know, they asked the question, are these things true? And so what we see then uh, is uh, in verse 15, chapter 6, when he's brought before the council, it says this, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Isn't that interesting? They didn't see the face of an evildoer. They didn't see the face of a blasphemer. No, they saw the face that radiated the holiness and glory of God. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 53, and I'll not take time to read these, basically what Stephen does is he rehearses with them the history of Israel. Because they asked the question, are these things true? Are you blaspheming the temple? Are you blaspheming God? Are you blaspheming Moses? And he gives a defense of himself. And from verses 2 through 50, everything he says, they're nodding their head in agreement and say, that's right, that's right, that's right. But then in verse 51, Stephen brings an indictment against them. Look at verse 51 with me in chapter 7. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Man, those were bold words. He's speaking for his life, and yet he is not backing down one moment to this council. He's trying to point out to them their sin and that they needed to repent. He says, not only that, he says that you have received the law by the direction of angels and you have not kept it. And then verses 54 through 60, we see Stephen being martyred martyred for his faith. You see, it tells us in verse 54, it says that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. It means they were infuriated. They were seething with anger. And it goes on to say that they gnashed their teeth. And, if I just woke you up or startled you, I'm sorry. <laughs> they were so infuriated and angry. You see, they had a choice at this point. They could repent of their sin or they could respond, respond with pride and anger and defensiveness and unrepentantness. And that's the, that's the choice that they made. And then we see I mean, they, they, they are just fit to be tied. They are coming unglued at this point. And look at verses 55 and 56 with me. It says this, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, listen, he wasn't rattled. He wasn't worried. He wasn't anxious at this moment. He filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
I want you to see the contrast. Stephen has spiritual insight. He can see into heaven. They are spiritually blind. They don't see any of this going on. He is completely at peace. They are completely unglued at this point. And when they hear this and they hear the name Son of Man and they know he's talking about Jesus, man, they just, they completely lose it. They cry out with a loud voice. It says they covered the ears. They rushed upon him. They drug him out into the city and they stoned him. I want you to notice, however, as we bring this to a conclusion, the spirit of this man who was in tune with God's spirit. Verse 59 says, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in verse 60, he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Does that not remind you of anyone or anything Jesus hanging on the cross. Into my, thy hands I commend my spirit. Looking out at the crowd, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, resembles the Lord Jesus Christ there on the cross. I tell you, I can tell a huge difference in my spirit when I'm operating in the power of the flesh. And then when I'm filled with the Spirit of God, I can tell a huge difference. And you know what? Probably you can too. Here's the question I want to leave you with this morning. What is your desire as a believer? Are you willing to settle for the best you can do in your own power? Or do you desire to walk in the power of God's Spirit as God's instrument of righteousness for His glory as his witnesses. You know, the choice is ours. But it's a daily choice we have to make. At, at this time, we're going to enter into a time of reflection and remembrance of what Jesus did for us on the cross as we observe the Lord's Supper here this morning. I'm going to ask the, the worship leaders to come back up on the stage. They're going to lead us. Brother... Uh, David Brewer is going to come and administer the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about these things that we've been talking about. Are we truly desirous to be bold witnesses for Christ? Listen, the only way that will ever happen, the only way we can stand in the face of danger, the only way we can face our fears is if we are under the control and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Help us to recognize that just as we were wholly dependent upon you to provide forgiveness for our debt of sin by your son's death on the cross, so we are daily dependent upon your Holy Spirit to empower us to live for Jesus. And as the early church prayed, Father, deliver us from pride and the fear of what people might say or may think about us and grant us, your servants, the power to speak out boldly on behalf of the gospel 
that our friends, our associates, our neighbors, and our families might come to know you and experience your grace and mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.